they surrounded me with, you know, with, um, you know, an incredible amount of support, love, nurturing, and the occasional butt whooping, you know. <laughs> the Fred Minnick Show is brought to you by 291 Colorado Whiskey, by Michter's, by Heaven Hill Brands, and DraftKings. Enter Fred at DraftKings.com for a chance at millions of dollars in prizes with first deposit. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fred Minnick Show. Fred here, and... Uh, I, I want to tell you a story, and I want to get your I want to get your advice. So either you can email me on fredminnick.com or hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, however you follow me. Just just follow me back, you know, or, or hit me up. I, I want to know what you think about this. So I have a longtime friend uh, that just got into bourbon, you know, and he's been. You know, he and I have been friends since college. You know, we lost touch for a little bit. But, you know, we text, you know, just like a lot of relationships in, in the world today. And so he, he's getting back into bourbon. He's wanting to get back together. And then it occurred to me, man, this guy still owes me rent money from college. I mean, he legitimately owes me like, you know, in 1999, 2000. I mean, this would have been a $600 uh, rental payment in college. You know, keep in mind that that's a lot of money for a guy like me at this at that point in my life. Well, heck, even now, it's a lot of money. But, you know, I've been thinking to myself, should I cash in? You know, should I, should I, like, require this payment? Like, the next time we meet up? You know, he's a big-time, uh, big-time executive now in the construction industry. And I'm wondering if I don't make him pay when we meet up in Vegas or something, something like that. And... I kind of feel I kind of feel like I should, but also like that's kind of crappy of me. Anyway, I'd love your thoughts about that. Do you make this guy pay, and do I do I add interest onto the payment? Because six hundred dollars in nineteen ninety nine is a whole lot more money right now. And believe me, I like me a whole lot more money. <laughs> So I'd lo- I'm looking forward to your advice. And by the way, if you hit me up on fredminnick.com, be sure to let me know your address so we can send you one of those fancy stickers that you've seen on people's cars, on computers, subway rail stations. Um, yeah, and if you've used the Fred Minnick Show sticker, if you've got it somewhere, take a picture of it and tag me on social media. I'd love to show it off and show people, like, listen – this is what you get when you listen to the, sh- the Fred Minnick show. You get a sticker. But I do ask, of course, that you do not use it in a criminal activity. Don't need the cops calling me wanting to know why uh, my sticker holders are Robin Banks and so forth. So this week's guest is uh, actor Jeffrey Wright. You know, the Westworld, James Bond. You know, there's some talk of him being in Batman coming up and. He is this. Uh, he is an iconic actor. You know, he's a solid A-lister, and what an amazing human being. Now, this interview actually took place in 2019, so it's it, it's pre-COVID. So it's an interesting conversation because we don't even know what's going on right now in the world uh, in terms of like COVID and so forth. But the interview took place in 2019. It was a part of my Amazon Prime series, uh, Bourbon Up. And that is, um, that's basically, you know, that basically is no more. So Bourbon Up is, you know, it's no longer in production. It essentially got canceled. But I have the rights to the audio and the the online, the Amazon Prime 
version was edited, you know, so it's cut up and, you know, made for TV was like, I think 15, 20 minutes. The interview was a full hour. And so I'm really excited that I was able to, you know, dust this off and bring it here because Jeffrey Wright is, is one of the most important people in in the world right now, especially in the entertainment industry. He is in high demand. One of my favorite things that he's done, he was on Rick and Morty in the episode where uh, Rick was, uh, you know, created a special world where he could have a golden toilet. And the Jeffrey Wright character found out about this toilet and he kept going over there and using the toilet. And <laughs> it just... I'm, I, I have a very, like, 15-year-old sense of humor, so I haven't changed a bit when I, what I think is funny. Uh, so, you know, that that part is true about me. And anyway, you, if you don't like Rick and Morty, if you haven't watched Rick and Morty, it's it's an incredible, funny, hilarious uh, uh, TV series that's a cartoon, basically, in on Adult Swim, and there's a lot of commercials around them. Anyway, 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 so that's one of my favorite Jeffrey Wright moments. You would think it'd be one when he won a Golden Globe uh, or an Emmy, but no, it's my, it's the episode in Rick and Morty where he's, uh, he's stealing the toilet from Rick. Uh, Yeah, that's, that shows you where I'm at in life. I'm, I'm laughing at that kind of stuff. Anyway, this is a, is a great interview. It's, it's very, very important. We talk about some key issues, uh, that's happening in society, and this was before this interview took place. Again, before um, before COVID, uh, before a lot of the things became aware, we became aware of a lot of the social issues that our country's facing uh, on a national level. So, I think this is an important interview, and we are sipping some Uncle Nearest, which he is an investor in. So, enjoy this episode with the great Jeffrey Wright. But first, I got to tell you, this past week, I don't think I have been this happy in I don't know how long. I turned on the TV and just football, football, football. Wee-hoo! Absolutely love it. And you all know I've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. But DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of the NFL, is a sponsor on this podcast. I mean, that's like a dream come true for me. I mean, I've already went over there and entered the code FRED, started playing myself, and I'm dropping coin in there. I Now, I'm going to win. I know I'm going to win. And listen, it's been a great start to the season. It's only getting better. I want you to get on DraftKings because not only is it showing support for this podcast, but it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I want you to go on the go to DraftKings.com or on the on the app, enter code FRED to get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with your first deposit. And take a screenshot of your lineup and send it to me. I'd love to compare my lineup to yours and maybe maybe you have a tip that I need. But it's real simple. You just pick your lineup. You stay under the salary cap, and you see how your team stacks up against the competition. You basically feel the NFL action like like nothing before. You know, this is, to me, it's more exciting than being in a sports book in Vegas. You know, DraftKings is safe. It's secure. It's reliable. And the best part is you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. You know, so this is almost... It's almost like a bank if you think about it. But anyway, call to action here. You got to go to the DraftKings app, 
now and use code FRED. This week, new customers can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Enter code FRED to get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with your first deposit. That's code FRED. Only at DraftKings, the official fantasy partner of the NFL. Minimum $5 deposit required. I mean, who ain't got five bucks to drop in here? You know you got it. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Woo! Do it. People want a great whiskey that isn't like every other whiskey. So nestled in the shadow of Pikes Peak, 291 Colorado whiskey is distilled from grain to barrel to bottle. Exceptional Western whiskey, unlike any other. Passion permeates every sip. Utilizing grains from the Colorado Plains, water collected from Pikes Peak Reservoirs, and finished with Aspen Staves, 291 Colorado Whiskey is an award-winning single barrel and small batch whiskey. Hard made the Colorado way. Our recipe, our stills, independent and always rugged, refined, and rebellious. 291 Colorado Whiskey is proud of its humble roots and excited as we expand to new frontiers. Get your taste of Colorado at 291coloradowhiskey.com. Online orders available or find a bottle near you. Ride it like you stole it. Drink it like you own it. Live fast. Drink responsibly. Mike Hines here, founder of Natural Barrel Company. Hey, look, I invested my life savings into drinking bourbon, and damn it, I want to drink a bourbon with you. Come see me at Natural Barrel Company, just minutes from downtown Nashville. Must be 21 dinner. At Michter's Distillery, our passion is making the finest bourbon, rye, and American whiskey possible. When you only produce very small batch and single barrel whiskey as we do, each and every barrel has to be perfect. No detail is too small for our production team. From careful attention to the 18-month or more air-dried wood used in the construction of our barrels, to entering our distillate into the barrel at the costlier or lower barrel entry proof of 103 so that it's smoother, to heat cycling our barrel houses, to our signature filtration protocol, we spare no expense in pursuing our goal of making the greatest American whiskey. And no Michter's gets bottled until our master distiller, Dan McKee, and our master of maturation, Andrea Wilson, say it's just right. Michter's Fort Nelson Distillery in downtown Louisville, Kentucky is open for tours and tastings. Book your visit on our website and stop by the bar at Fort Nelson for a world-class cocktail. For more information, follow us on social media at Michter's Whiskey, go to michters.com, or visit your favorite bartender. Michter's Distillery. It's all about the whiskey. Heaven Hill Distillery has been lifting America's spirit since 1935. They celebrate American whiskey's rich traditions, guide its evolution, and champion its exciting future. For Heaven Hill, whiskey is more than a profession. It's a personal passion that is poured into every bottle shared with newcomers and aficionados alike. So whether you enjoy the simple pleasure of Evan Williams bottled in bond or savor the uniquely satisfying experience of a rare single barrel bourbon like Elijah Craig, 18 year old, you'll find a home at Heaven Hill. If you want to learn more about the craft and techniques of making quality American whiskey, check out educational resources and sign up for their newsletter at heavenhilldistillery.com. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Cheers. So, when did you get involved with Uncle Nearest? Um, like I said, I formally got involved. Um, 
late last year. Uh, I was originally introduced to the story uh, as Fawn was. Fawn, we were the CEO and founder of the company when I read the article in the New York Times. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. About two and a half years ago. And I was just, uh, I drank it all in from the start. Mm -hmm. I thought the story was um, so compelling and so beautiful. Um, I'm always a fan of the stories of American history that tell us who we are in ways that most often we are not told. Um, our story, our collective story as Americans, is so much more nuanced and complicated and, um, and uh, collective than most of us um, are led to believe. It's so much more interesting when you dig down and you find out what actually happened as opposed to the whitewashed version of our o history. Often, literally, we, we say whitewashed yes. because there's been a lot. You know, when we speak of, of Uncle Nearest, um, you know, Nearest Green was, was a character, a real person in American whiskey history mm -hmm. that kind of put off to the side and not really talked about for a very long time. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's reflective, I think, of what happens often um, uh, in, in our country, unfortunately. So the story, he, he's, he's, he's sidetracked or he's pushed aside in the history, but his legacy is a real one. That's right. uh, and that's undeniable. And so what this bottle honors is that. It honors the facts of the matter. And I think what um, is particularly exciting about this story now, uh, at this time in our country, is that um, I think whether we know it or not, we're thirsting for stories that bring us together, that stories that uh, represent um, the connections that we share as, uh, as a people. And so, uh, you know, I think in some ways, uh, this drink mm -hmm. unites us. And so um, I'm really pleased to be a part of it. It's a great whiskey, mm -hmm. but also uh, it's a great story and it's a great taste of history. And so I'm really, I'm really pleased to be well, a part let, of it. Well, let's, let's have our first toast then. You know, sure. Nearest Green is the man who taught the Jack Daniel how to distill. He's a former enslaved person. And um, Uncle Nearest is bringing his history to the forefront and you're a big part of that, so cheers well, to that, my friend. Cheers to our history. You know, that is good whiskey. It's good, man. That's good whiskey. It's right to the point, you know, it's got, it's got a clarity. A some car caramel there going. It, it does, not, it, not overly, overly sweet. Um, it just has, for me, it has a, it has a sharpness. Um, there, there's an oakiness in there, but there's a real directness to it that I appreciate. There's a note in here yeah. that I, I love to find in American whiskey, mm. marzipan. Mm. You get a little marzipan in that. Uh, I, I I see that, but it's not overly so. I think it's with kind of certain back with end. certain whiskey, you know, certain certain whiskey, certain bourbons, I I kind of pull back when I get overly like kind of vanilla tones or overly overly chocolatey tones. But this is a nice. The balance here for me is uh, is, um, is is nice, and you know, I get I get you know a punch, but I also get a little a uh, little love with it too. You know. Now your connection to whiskey really is—it goes beyond 
Uncle Nearest. I recall seeing you on Stephen Colbert yeah. talking about how you prepared for a scene by drinking bourbon. <laughs> Remember that? Ooh, there might have been one or two <laughs> scenes along the way. Well, I'll tell you, this, uh, when I did a movie uh, that we shot right around here called Basquiat, about Jean-Michel Basquiat, the uh, artist who was, uh, you know, wunderkind, who just, whose painting just sold for $115 million, I think, recently. Um, but he was a character, he was a brilliant artist. Um, he was pretty edgy. And so um, I did this, it was back in the mid-90s. First week um, of filming went really well. You know, I was 28, 29 years old, my first big role, playing opposite David Bowie and Dennis Hopper and Chris Walken, Gary Oldman, you know, just like, you know, artistic, uh, you know, you know uh, 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 I consider them kind of mentors of mine, right. you know. But uh, first week went well, and so, the producer showed up in my trailer and was like, yeah, hey, you know, or just left a gift. And I said, what's this? Open it up as a bottle of Maker's Mark. I was like, oh, cool. It's like, okay. So the next week, we're filming, and, and the director says to me, he says, you been drinking? <laughs> I said, yeah. You guys gave me a bottle of Maker's Mark last week. Yeah, yes, I have. But, you know, it also made sense for the character. I don't, you know, you've got to be, you be uh, discreet and, uh, and, and selective about these things. But, so, so but actually, my relation to whiskey goes past that. Okay. My, my grandfather uh, sold a bit of whiskey in his time. Legally? Legally and illegally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, I, uh, my grandfather, uh, my mom's on my mom's side was from Tidewater, Virginia. Mm -hmm. He was an oysterman uh, and a crabber. He was a waterman, also farmed, uh, and uh, you know he was a Renaissance, uh, you know, country guy. So he sold a little whiskey, everything you needed, you know, you mm -hmm. could get from uh, from Boo White's house, and. When I was a kid growing up, um, you, know, you, you could only buy uh, spirits at the ABC stores. Right. So I would, you know, I would go with him and I'd go pick okra in the fields. I wouldn't go out with him to the water because he'd leave at 4.30 and I, in the morning and I wasn't having that. <laughs> We'd go fishing on the weekends, but I'd go, you know, pick, you know, vegetables with him, which I just was just, you know, the, you know, I just... I, you know, my older cousin would, he loved, he worked much harder than I, but I would get out there and do my bit, you know, picking butter beans and corn and whatever he was growing, potatoes. But oftentimes I would, he said, come on, man, we're going to the uh, ABC store. So I'd go to the ABC store with him and the house was, I guess, one of a, several shot houses mm -hmm. on this country road. So, you know, guys coming out of the water, coming out of their fields, coming home from, coming home from the shipyard would stop at a series of houses on their way home on this, uh, uh, on, in this town and grab, a, and grab a 50 cent shot and my grandfather's house was one of them. I did uh, a show recently with you know, the genealogy show with Skip Gates and he said, uh, he was you know, walking me back through my family history and he, he, he said, turn the page and he pulled up an article from the Daily Press which is mm -hmm. a newspaper down there, 1959. It says, William Henry Whiting Sr arrested for selling untaxed whiskey. He said, does that sound like your grandfather? I said, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> but then he went on to say, he said, well, do you know how your grandfather learned to make whiskey? Because he used to, you know, he was a, a 
you know, he would make some moonshine as well. I said, no, I don't. He said, turn the next page. He said, Georgia, Missouri, Whiting, arrested for untaxed, selling untaxed whiskey. It was my grandfather's uh, mother. Wow. Who taught him. Uh, he, my grandfather was born in 1904. She was born, obviously, in the 19th century, but her, my grand, her husband, my grandfather's father, my great-grandfather, died when my grandfather was 14 years old of influenza, and that's when she began to um, either, I think, make and or sell uh, whiskey and pass it on to him. So this is a, kind of a natural progression. Yeah, you've got me. whiskey cells in your blood. More than, yeah, not only I mean, maybe you, Are you making whiskey in your, in your basement or anything like not that? Not yet. You know about? Not yet. But, you know, I'll take a few tours of Kentucky and Tennessee, which <laughs> I haven't done yet, and then maybe I'll come up with something. But the, for, for now, this is... This, this uh, is, this you know, good. this is going to be hard to beat for your, for your first batch. Yeah. I'll tell you that. So stay, staying in line with your family, you know, your father passed away when you were very young. Mm-hmm. And your, your mother and your sister raised you. My mother and my, her, her sister, my aunt, yeah. What kind, what kind of, um, so your mother and her sister raised you, mm-hmm. what, what kind of um, impact did that have, you, have on you in your, in your life being raised by, by two women? Oh, like that? yeah, everything. Um, my mom was a lawyer uh, for the government, for mm-hmm. customs. My, uh, my aunt, uh, when she retired, was chief surgical nurse at D.C. General Hospital, the, uh, the city hospital there. So they were, you know, both you know, kind of, as I described, kind of working class professional, because they're, you know, these are, these are government, uh, government positions, but they taught me work. Uh, they taught me the value of that, which was passed down from, you know, from their parents. Um, and they, they just gave me everything. My mom's, the thing she valued above all else was education, because mm-hmm. when my grandfather's, uh, father passed away when he was 14. That was the end of school for him. So he went to work at that point. My grandmother had a similar story. But my aunt, who raised me, was the first to graduate college um, down at Hampton, then Hampton Institute down in Virginia. My mom followed. And so that was their pathway to uh, a middle-class existence, although my grandfather did well. He did well from whiskey. Um, but he instilled in them uh, the value of education and the value and, and the opportunity that education would bring for them to make their own choices and determine to some extent their own destinies. So that, they instilled that with me and they surrounded me with, you know, with uh, you know, an incredible amount of support, love, nurturing, and the occasional butt whooping. You know? <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, you know, because uh, my dad passed when I was one, I didn't, I didn't miss out on any, any, of, the, any of this. Give us, this. A, give us a butt whooping story since you brought it up. Well, I'll tell you this. There were a couple, you know, I used to break windows, you know, I was a ball player, whether it was baseballs or lacrosse or basketballs in the backyard, you know, and then I'd try to hide them, you know. <laughs> and then my mom would find the, you know, the remnants of the glass, you know, lying there that I, you know, failed to, uh, to clean up. So, you know, she'd come home, my mom worked pretty long hours, you know, but she'd come home and it didn't matter if it happened like, you know, five hours before that that window was broken, I might... I might catch a Hot Wheels strip, <laughs> Hot Wheels track. She was kind of handy, whatever, you know, was like available. Um, yeah, but you know, all done with love. Um, but yeah, so um, the, the, you know, not having a father, some, 
you know, was, you know, I missed not having a dad. I had my grandfather, I had some, you know, some men who, you know, were kind of surrogates in my life. But being raised by two women, in some ways, is like being raised by eight men. And they combine that strength, you know. Wow. They, they put it to you. So, um, could, it was, you know, I didn't, I, I yeah, my dad passed, but I, I didn't miss for much. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he's still looking down proud of you, though. Well, yeah, he, you know, he actually, when he passed away, he was, uh, he was in charge of sales for Rheingold Beer up here in, uh, in Brooklyn. He used to work along with uh, Monty Irvin, the, the San Francisco Giants. So there's a lot of this tradition. This, you know, as I said, this is Again, natural. you're tapping into your roots, yeah. your blood. Yeah. When did you know you wanted to be an actor? Oh, God. Um, my mom used to take me to the theater okay. uh, when I was growing up. We'd see everything that came through D.C. We'd see, you know, the, the musicals that came through, like the black musicals, like Pearly and Bubbling Brown Sugar. We'd see Annie. We'd see uh, 1776. We'd see the straight plays, like uh, I remember seeing James Whitmore and Give Him Hell Harry about Harry Truman. I saw, I think it was... Uh, uh, Paul Whitfield do a one-man show about Martin Luther King. We saw uh, uh, Avery Brooks do a one-man show about Paul Robeson. Saw just the gamut of plays at the National Theater and the Ford's Theater and the Warner Theater in, in D.C. And that um, kind of instilled in me a love of theater. Mm -hmm. And I became just kind of intrigued and fascinated by the world backstage. I was convinced as a seven, eight-year-old kid that when the curtain dropped, the story that we had just taken, taken in was still happening back there, that that world existed back there. I remember feeling that uh, distinctly. I remember, the, I think the first play that I went to was Oliver, Dinner Theater, uh, when I was maybe three. And I, these things just like imprinted on me. So, but growing up in DC, you know, DC's kind of a one-horse town. It's politics, it's law and government, and you know, that's the three-headed one horse. But you know, it's you know, and 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 I'd like to say, if you grow up in Hawaii, you surf. You know, if you grow up in you know certain parts of Kentucky, whiskey and and, and horses. If you grow up in D.C., you do politics, and so that's where my head was. Often, the school that I went to was you know very much kind of in that uh, vein, and so. I graduated and I went to college, you know, political science major in college, mm -hmm. thinking I would go to law school. And my junior year, that bug that, you know, had been, you know, that bit me, you know, you know many years before going to the theater with my mom, you know, finally, uh, you know, that, the, that, that venom finally spread and I took an acting class. And the first day of that class, um, I knew that's what I was going to be doing for wow. a while. Yeah. Now, your roles, you're one of the few actors who seem to, every single role you have is like poetic. Mm. Like you seem to like act through the screen. Like some people just kind of read the, the scripts and they play the role, but everything I've ever seen you in, you transcend the role. You become one with it almost from mm. Boardwalk Empire you know, to the OG. Let's do, are you very selective about the roles you take because you get to have that type of poetic influence? Well, you've obviously never seen that movie I did with Sylvester Stallone. Oh. 
saw that. <laughs> Thankfully. Don't even bother, bother to Google that. <laughs> well, if they um, Google it now, you <laughs> might get streaming numbers off. Oh, boy. No thanks. No thanks. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've, I'm in a place now where, uh, and, you know, I've always tried to be selective. You make choices for different reasons at different points in your career. After I had a son and a daughter, uh, about 17 years old, uh, my son now, my daughter is 13 years old. When you, you have kids, you make choices for a different reason. You go, oh, you kids eat every day, don't you? Like three times a day. So you've got to take those considerations as well as the creative ones. But I've gotten into a, back into a place now where um, I've had the good fortune of working on some really interesting projects, projects that I'm drawn to um, um, very deeply, uh, drawn to the language, drawn to the story. Uh, OG was one of those. Um, uh, Boardwalk Empire really began that trend for me again. Uh, you are amazing in Boardwalk Empire. Well, that you know, the writing there is so delicious. Um, you know, a bunch of New York playwrights, you know, writing for uh, for the screen uh, for the most part. And when they sent me that character, I was I just I, the, just the language just jumped off at the page, mm -hmm. and the and the and the picture of this guy just <clears throat> just leapt into my head. So. I also like certain roles like that role that are a little bit outside of the realistic, that are a little bit a performance within a performance. I think we get too caught up now in the stuff that we watch and the stuff that we put out that it's got to be as real as possible. It's realism. It's great. Well, realism lives outside the window right there. You can see that anywhere. But a, a movie, a show, a play is a is a thing. It's an mm -hmm. artifice, and you have much more room inside that to, you know, that than I think we take advantage of sometimes. But Narcisse was such a perform, such a ham, such a charlatan. You know, it was just like just to wrap myself around all of that bullshit, you know, that he was offering, and you know, wrapped in some kernels of truth, but largely, you know, kind of selfish, you know, self-interested, you know. Uh, gamesmanship that he was up to that was just that was great fun and being driven by this language that was poetic in and of itself and 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 was his weapon whereas everybody had a gun yeah you know his language was or his uh, his his best weapon was language and I, I it appealed to me on, on boardwalk empire obviously <laughs> and you know the whiskey community we watched that uh, for sure. the whiskey history there sure. was, was was the cast cognizant of, of like the impact Boardwalk Empire was having on whiskey at the time uh, you know I hadn't really thought of that but that you know that makes good sense I think um, I think people um, that that the show appealed to people for many reasons but many many of those reasons grounded in our history you know again yeah. and the tone of the thing just the detail in the in the production design and set design. It had a warmth to it that kind of invited you back into that period in a way that uh, kind of uh, protected you from the, from the violence <laughs> that, that, uh, that came with it. But, it. but it just had just a wonderful oaky tone to it, you know, a leathery tone to it. So um, I hadn't thought of it in that way, but that, that makes perfect sense. Another show you're on that kind of evokes a, a whiskey interest is, is Westworld, yeah. because they're drinking a lot of whiskey yeah. 
in, inside uh, those bars there. But yeah. of course, when, when people look at you, they're not thinking about the bars. They're think, yeah. wondering if you're a robot. Yeah. How, I, how often uh, do you get stopped in airports yeah, or I on get the street? Yeah, I get that a little bit. I get that a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no whiskey for me, just cortical, flu cortical fluid, you know? <laughs> That's, uh, but you know, you know, Westworld again, uh, like Boardwalk Empire, well, it's another HBO show. HBO uh, does this. They they find quality writing. You know that's what's driving everything, and then they surround it with these incredible um, production levels of production value. And so, um, uh, Westworld was that when Jonah Nolan reached out to me and said, "Hey, uh, you know, have you seen the original movie?" Which I hadn't, and went back and watched. He said, "Hey, well, this is the idea," and he sent me the script, and I read that script. And it was it was it was so um, new um, and so well constructed. The architecture of the storytelling was like nothing else I'd read before, and it was really um, like kind of filled with all of these ideas and all of these observations about where we are now relative to technology. But at the same time, there was an efficiency to the language and an efficiency to the structure that 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 I when I that I, when I read it. I, I, I said, man, this is really, this is good. And it also provided um, scaffolding yeah. going forward that would allow you to explore uh, any, 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 really an infinite number of places just by the nature of the premise. So, you know, the, um, you know, the original uh, film, uh, not based on a book, not based on a, based on a Michael Crichton book, he, you know, he just read this, uh, wrote the screenplay and directed it. But the, the original piece was so far ahead of its time, now we've kind of caught up with Crichton's premise and we understand that technology as a, as a society um, in, in a way that, that, um, that I think gives greater relevance to the story now. And we see the, in the, you know, the, uh, the analogies that are being, you know, being offered and we find ourselves inside of them in a way that's, that's you know, really gratifying for us as filmmakers. Um, and I hope for audiences too. But yeah, we you know there's whiskey. There's there's whiskey. There's uh, whiskey everywhere. Whiskey everywhere. Yeah, yeah. As, as there should be. Yeah. So Westworld also kind of gives us a, a little bit of a glimpse into what might happen if we have a robot theme park. Mm. And there's a con constant conversation going on in technology right now about artificial intelligence. You know, and what's the limit? Are we taking technology too far? Is Westworld a little bit of a warning of? What's to come if, if we keep going down this path? The short answer is yes, very much so. And we start filming the third season uh, in a couple of weeks, and we've had some meetings about where we're going and what some of the ideas are. And you know, I, I think I think in some ways there's an odd, at least social devolution going on with us right now. Yeah. Um, you know, we all thought, hey, wow the internet, computers, we're gonna have access to whole libraries of information at the, you know, at the tip of your, 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 your thumbs and everything, great. And we didn't predict that we'd also have access to entire libraries of disinformation, misinformation and lies and half-truths and that that technology would be manipulated in a way that would restrict our freedoms and I think what is happening now is that 
we are not really appreciative of the extent to which we're being, we're already being controlled by algorithms. Mm -hmm. The choices are being made for us in terms of what information we're receiving, of what information, the information that we receive will be, will prompt more information for us to be, for us to take in. Um, it's a strange time. And I think we're seeing the implications of, um, of this technology playing out in, in real time uh, in our relationships to one another. And I don't think we are necessarily getting closer um, as, uh, as a species. I think we're all finding our own little rabbit holes to kind of jump down in. There may be some other people that kind of inhabit those, but I think we're at a, we're at a time that, that should give us a little bit of pause. You know, one area I think that we can take some appreciation that we are getting closer in is actually whiskey. Mm. We're seeing a diversification uh, in the whiskey community, you know, really unlike any time before. Mm. Uh, from a historical standpoint, you know, there were only a couple writers, myself included, who were writing about enslaved persons and whiskey. Mm. And now there seems to be an ongoing conversation about that. We have Uncle Nears come to the forefront. We're seeing a lot more African-American distillers come forward, and there's certainly a larger audience uh, from the African-American community coming to whiskey. Mm -hmm. But I don't see that nationally as a society. I almost feel, I don't know how you feel about this, but I almost feel like race relations have gotten worse yeah. in the last 10 years. Well, they've certainly gotten worse in the last two years. Um, and I think one of the things that's happening is that certain people are trying to decide who's an American and who's not. Hmm. Or what level of American are you? Now, I, my family, we can trace us, ourselves back to the 1600s in Virginia and the Carolinas. So, you know, I don't take that shit from anyone. And um, I think that the, the as in terms of <clears throat> what defines us as Americans, we can look at our innovations as well to tell us something about our histories. Mm -hmm. Whiskey, Tennessee whiskey is certainly an American innovation. Bourbon, likewise. And if we start to ask, I've always wondered, well, you know, it's a question that's asked, what distinguishes American whiskeys and bourbon from European whiskeys? Um, certainly their ingredients, you know, you would know more than I, certain techniques, the Lincoln County process. And these things, I think, could remain a mystery to us if we exclude the contributions of all Americans mm -hmm. to creating these things. So when we learn the story of Nearest Green and we learn his mastery of the Lincoln County process and we think about the usage of charcoal by peoples and we recognize that perhaps that was passed down uh, from West African traditions included in the American experiment, married to these European experiments, and all of a sudden we come up with something distinctly American that distinguishes us as a people and as innovators from what came before on the other side of the ocean. Then we begin to celebrate ourselves uh, truthfully, but we can only do that when we take in the considerations of everyone who contributed. Absolutely. And so for me, the analogy is how can you not 
and many people aren't, sadly, but how can you not celebrate jazz in America? When I argue, along with whiskey, one of the great contributions culturally of our society, probably the highest American art form, how can you celebrate jazz and not know who Louis Armstrong was? How can you only say, oh, it was Benny Goodman? You know, oh, it was, uh, it was Chet Baker, amazing musicians. But to tell the lie that W.C. Handy and Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet and all of these guys weren't a part of it is to do yourself a disservice, is to kind of uh, wallow in ignorance for no other reason but to kind of blind yourself to the truth and think yourself uh, superior or more American than, some, than, than the rest of us here. So how do we get, I, I've, heard, I've heard countless discussions on this and I, and I can't ever get people past the, well, you're, you're trying to say like something's, the, the other side will say, well, that's, it's not my fault and people don't know it and they just put a barrier up right there. Yeah. How do we get past this argument of state that we have in society and just focus on what was. Yeah, it's, you know, nobody's blaming anyone. I don't think that's the point. And, and I, you know, I think when you look at the Jack Daniels company, when they were afraid to tell this, to, well, it's controversial. I think we need to, <clears throat> I think we look through a lens that doesn't help us understand things. For example, when we look back at the antebellum South, mm -hmm. um, Certainly there was brutality. Certainly there was barbarism even inflicted on people, on, uh, on black folks in this country. That's the truth. But at the same time, <clears throat> simply because you were a slave didn't imply that you weren't a human being, but also that you couldn't be ingenious as well. Correct. So if you look back and you think of enslaved people as being the nameless people that are listed in the censuses. And that's how, if you go back and you look and say, you'll see a name for, a, for a, a plantation owner, a slaver, and then you'll see a list often of ages and sexes and perhaps occupations and there'll be a blank, a series of blanks where the names should have been. If we try to make these people disappear, then we also try to um, disappear any, uh, any uh, innovation that they, that they contributed, any work that they contributed. You go down and you see this beautiful architecture that, that exists in the South now to this day that's, re that's a remnant of those times. Well, who, who, do, who do you think built that? Who do you think had, this, had the craftsmanship, the mastery of, of craft to build that? And so if we, if we go back and we view through the dehumanizing lens of the time and view those people who were subjugated to that through that lens, then we won't see anything. But if we recognize that they were humans too, although there was an attempt to dehumanize them, then maybe we can go back and look with a more nuanced eye and say, okay, that was a horrible period, but well, what exactly did they do? And if we make assumptions that they did nothing, then we'll never understand this story. So it's almost on us to, to find every one of them that we can and tell their story. 100%. I think story has an opportunity to carve through all of uh, the misinformation now 
true, well-considered, well-researched story that um, really is kind of represents our collective consciousness, mm -hmm. you know, as a people. This is who we actually are, where we actually, you know, derive our livelihood today from is from this history. And if we can really understand um, all of the complexity of that, I think we do ourselves a great service. We may have to, you know, tamp down some fear on all sides. We may have to be a little vulnerable, you know. Yeah, maybe we didn't do everything, you know, or maybe we're not quite as powerful as, you know, we think we are without, you know, uh, you know, the hand of violence behind us. Because remember, that's what was going on here. Yeah. You know, you know there, was, there was violence. There, were, there was deception. There was the manipulation of religion. All of these things is, you know, these uh, highly uncivilized things that went into, you know, the, you know that history, that history, antebellum, uh, you know, slave history in our country. So in some ways, personally, um, you know, I've got, you know, I'm, my, you know, my gene pool is a complicated one, you know, but when I go back and I look at the names that were, you know, relatives of mine who were on those, you know, those antebellum censuses as nameless, or could look at, go back and look at those nameless relatives of mine, in some ways, I take a little strength from the fact that uh, I'm descendant of those more so than I'm descendant of those who tried to make them nameless, right? You know, we're also a, a country that's grounded in a, you know, a Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, uh, basis. And if we take that seriously, then, you know, we probably need to look, all of us, whether we're white, black, regardless, go back and look at what was done to certain people in this country, Native American one, well, with a pretty critical jaundice eye. So I want to tell you about, I was uh, researching my, one of my books called uh, Whiskey Women, and I found a woman who um, basically is the first known record of creating the sour mash technique. Mm. And it was 1818. Uh -huh. And I came across her property records. Uh -huh. And in there were several enslaved persons. Uh -huh. And one of them was a 12-year-old named Little Bob. And uh, couldn't find much else on him. He was listed in the property books for like $50. <laughs> so hearing you talk about this, I, I try to tell people about Little Bob as much as I can, you know, to remind people that these weren't just adults yeah. who were slaves. Yeah. These were children yeah. stripped away from any opportunity of a life. Yeah, yeah. So just a moment, yeah. remembering Little Bob. Little Bob. Well, you know, <clears throat> Little Bob. And to all those unknown, you know, the, I remember I did a Faulkner piece with an actor, a reasonably well-known actor, it was just me and him, and there was a director, I didn't know him, and he'd come up from somewhere, I don't know, and we, it was a, we were doing it for, we were, it was an audio thing, I forget which piece it was, but it was a piece about a, uh, a Confederate officer who was returning home after the war, and I played this slave who would accompany them. I was like, here's some Faulkner, yeah, let me check it out. It was interesting. And when we were, when we were uh, working on the piece, the director said, you know, he said, well, you know, such and such, you know, you're coming back from the war and you, you know, you're mentally exhausted and you're, 
you know, you're just worn out, but you're back home, and now you've got to, you know, reintegrate into into all that, and you, you know, that's where you are. And he pointed me, you know, his this you're playing this slave who had accompanied this guy during four years of war. He said, "You, you're just happy to be home." And I said, "Hmm. So you think this guy, who accompanied this man through four years of war, wasn't subjected?" to the horrors of war, and he's just happy to be home. And it was, it was just, <laughs> it was almost laughable. Because w what he was doing was still, again, looking at, looking at this guy through a dehumanizing lens, as though maybe he picked up a, a, a firearm, maybe he didn't. But he certainly wasn't, uh, didn't have any uh, buffer against those cannonballs flying, or uh, explosions going, or the death around him. So his, his, um, his humanity was as sensitive to that as anyone else's. But for this guy, for some reason he couldn't. Wow. Is that, so the, and, and, and as well, if you're slain, then the assumption is you're doing some work. Yeah. You know? So I just think, uh, I just think the more we, we just settle down, breathe, you know, and, and uh, stop being so fearful. And just look at things with clarity as they are, you know, the more, we'll, the, the more we'll start to get there, you know. Well, I think whiskey can be a conduit to that. Yes, certainly, certainly. I really do. Uh, Henry Clay once said that he used whiskey to lubricate the wheels of justice. Right. <laughs> right, right. Well, those... Those wheels could go either way, though. I, I, yeah, they, back then there was uh, probably a little too much whiskey. Now, well, I'll tell you how I st first started drinking whiskey, though, because this is, this is, this is uh, you know, bringing, some, bringing people together, you know. I was a waiter in D.C. at a place called Cousteau's. I think it was my junior, the summer after my junior year of college. That's, is that still open? No, it's, this was down in K Street area, okay. downtown D.C., Great place, had like a lobster special every Thursday and this, you know, that kind of, you know, it was a bar restaurant, you know, but folks would come in for lunch, you know, because it's right in the heart of downtown DC. Nice little bar, uh, great small crew. And there was a guy who used to come in for lunch every day, sat by himself and, you know, glasses, kind of older, you know, slightly over, you know, thinning hair. Looked a bit lonely, you know. Thought he might have been Irish for what you know. He sat there and he would order a Jack and Ginger, have one with his lunch, and go back to work every day. Came in, have his Jack, and I was like Jack and Ginger, you know. You know oh, let me try that. <laughs> and Barton was like, oh, okay, that's good, man. That's how I started <laughs> drinking whiskey, right? And uh, and, uh, and then that kind of uh, that married into into bourbon into Maker's Mark and some other things, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, that was the coming together of an unlikely, uh, unlikely partners, wow. you know. And now here you and are. Now here I am, uh, you know, celebrating this with you. It is a celebration. It really is. It's, it's not only a celebration of, of nearest green, but it's all people. It's, it's a celebration it's, of America. It's absolutely. It's America in that bottle, mm -hmm. you know. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It's complicated, you know. 
We are a complicated people. Yes, we are. <laughs> and we, you know, we need to just embrace that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for taking some time with me to everything you've accomplished. You've had an incredible career. It's such a, such a pleasure uh, to Uncle Nearest, yeah. to America. Cool, to American Uncle Nearest. Cheers. Cheers. You know, it doesn't get bad after a couple minutes either. No, it's just there, warms, rounds out, up. rounds out a little bit. Yeah. I think it's actually might be a little more complicated. Yeah, opens palate. up. Yeah. Or maybe the conversation just got me going where I, I was ready for it. It could be no, but it. Uh, you know, what do you what do you taste in there? What do you? So this is a, this is a honey forward caramel, little uh, marzipan under it, mm -hmm. and then on the back end I get some spice, mm -hmm. some like cinnamon, cinnamon on the back end. Yeah. This isn't one that coats the tongue and sticks around for a long time, so yeah. this is what I would call, put in like the easy sipping whiskey. Mm -hmm. um, easily call this like a table whiskey, like this is what you would have at the table for, for Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, pass around with everybody. Yeah. And I dare say that that would go really, really well with a pumpkin pie. Okay, okay. I'll give that a shot with a pumpkin pie. With a pumpkin pie. Yeah, All that'd right. be a good pairing. Yeah, you, uh, <laughs> you went full bore there. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, we gotta, we gotta get down, I gotta get down to, to Kentucky, Tennessee. You gotta well, take me around, we'll taste a bit you'll more. Be, you'd be my guest, uh, so you can, so take you, can, you around. So you can help shape my palate. I think your palate's further. fine. You've been drinking for a while. You've been drinking this, you've been drinking the good stuff for a while now, oh, a so. Bit. A little bit, but you know, only like once, you know, once every year on a, you know, on the off Sunday, you know. Oh, whenever you want to come to Kentucky, we'll make it, we'll, we'll fill your day seven days, seven days of full drinking. Okay. Or sipping, sipping, yeah. tasting. All right, I'm going to take you up on that. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Cheers, thanks. All right, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and you can go on to Amazon Prime and see the edited version of uh, it's a, a series called Bourbon Up. Jeffrey was was a lot of fun. You know, we've stayed in touch. Just an iconic, important, historic actor. You know, I mean, he is one of those. He's one of those actors that you hear his voice and you know exactly who it is. I think the world of him. And uh, another thank you to. Um, to Jeffrey for coming on the show way back when, and I look forward to having him back on and kind of catching up and seeing seeing what he thinks about the world now and how it may have changed. But uh, that's going to do it for this week. Again, if you do not have a sticker, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. And click that contact button and get your sticker. Your sticker can be wherever you put it. Just don't use it in a criminal activity. Of course, follow me on all the socials. Hit me up anytime, and uh, if you wouldn't be so, if you'd be so kind, please, uh, please give us a review on on the podcast. However, you get the however you get your uh, your podcast, this will help with the algorithm overlords that dictate what you listen to and who listens to what. So, thank you for tuning in. Be safe out there, everybody, and remember, vodka sucks unless it's being used for hand sanitizer. Cheers, everyone. You've been listening to The Fred Minnick Show, brought to you by 291 Colorado Whiskey, by Michter's, by Heaven Hill Brands, and DraftKings. Enter Fred at DraftKings.com for a chance at millions of dollars in prizes with first deposit. For more information about Fred's books, articles, and more, just go to FredMinnick.com.